Grace Church. That's a great way to start a service, huh? Uh, so glad you're here, whether you're in Avon or Braintree or watching with us online. Um, we are thankful that you guys joined us as we are starting a new series. I'm Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm specifically pastoring the West Bridgewater location, which we are now less than two months away from publicly launching, September 16th. We are so excited about that. Um, but I'm excited to be here until then. Um, we have had just a, such an exciting summer here at Grace Church in all three locations. We've had movie nights. We had a kids camp in West Bridgewater uh, just a week and a half ago. Um, I actually just got done uh, talking with Bert and Brandon, who are our two student directors, um, and they shared that in the high school camp we had this past week and the middle school camp we had just a few weeks earlier, we had 15 first-time decisions for Jesus just at those camps. Isn't that unbelievable? Um, we are so excited about what God is doing in the student ministry, here in the kids' ministry, and, and at all of the uh, ministries here at Grace Church. Um, like I said, we are starting uh, a new series called At the Movies that we are so excited about for the next few weeks. Um, it'll be very different from Revelation and the series that we came out of. Um, this one is a little bit more lighthearted. Um, we're basically going to extract spiritual truths from popular movies that you may be familiar with. Um, how many of you have seen The Sandlot before? Hand raise? Yeah, okay. Uh, some of you maybe haven't, and you saw the trailer, and you're like, hey, we're going to rent that tonight when we go home, and that's totally fine. It's a great movie. Um, and uh, I, I watched that movie. I love it. It reminds me a lot of my childhood, um, not that I was on a baseball team, but just because I watched it a lot as a kid inside where there was AC. Um, and... Uh, but I want to ask, how many of you guys, when you look at that movie, it's all about a team of people that are playing baseball and, and friends that come closer. How many of you have ever been on a really good team before? Whether it was a sports team or like as a kid or maybe even some of you, maybe like you think of like a team that you have at work or a life group or some of you maybe played for the Patriots. We're not far from Foxborough, but like we all know what it's like to be on a team. A great team uh, is, is individuals that put we before me. And what I love about the Sandlot is it follows this kid that moves to a town, um, and he finds these friends through baseball. Um, and, and as the story develops, uh, we realize that, he, uh, that, that these are deeper friendships than just baseball, um, because, because they're a team. Like, they're there for one another. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at movies like The Sandlot, um, and we're going to be looking at what spiritual truths we can find from them. We believe that e even if a movie didn't, ha even if the writer of the movie didn't have the intention of writing the movie with these truths, I believe we can find uh, truths in them. I think that, uh, that God speaks uh, truth even through secular things. And so we've picked out a few fun movies. Um, hopefully they're movies that you've seen or are at least familiar with, and we'll show a few clips from them, and then we'll talk about um, how we might be able to find biblical truths in them. And so uh, uh, today we're, we're looking at uh, The Sandlot. And, uh, and what, I mean, a great summer movie. Uh, it, it's, it's baseball season. I mean, in Boston, it's really exciting to talk about baseball season because we're first in the league right now. I mean, this is, it's like in the air. So there's no better way to kick off uh, this series than by looking at The Sandlot. And so I'm going to set up the clip real quick. We're just going to show one short little clip from it. We're not going to watch the whole movie. I'm sorry but you can rent it when you get home on Amazon or whatever. Um, but the clip I'm going to show you, it takes place about halfway through the movie. Some of you have seen it, and you're like, I know, I, like, as I start to set it up, you'll know what I'm talking about. But um, basically these kids, uh, like, they're out of baseballs, and so the main kid, uh, Smalls, um, by the way, the famous line is, you're killing me, 
Smalls, right? That's from the Sandlot. That, I, I grew, I didn't know what a s'more was until I saw the Sandlot. I learned, because there's that scene where he's like, s'more what? I haven't had anything. He's like, do you want a s'more? Like, I learned that. I learned, I, I learned who Babe Ruth was through the Sandlot. Like, I watched it at such a young age. I'd heard that name before, but I thought it was just a candy bar, and apparently there was more than that. So, uh, but the movie, he grabs this baseball because they're out of baseballs, and he gets it from his stepdad's baseball collection, and he doesn't know anything about baseball, so he doesn't realize the significance, but it's actually autographed by Babe Ruth, and they go and they play, and he hits it over the fence, and, uh, and just watch what happens in the clip, and we'll talk about it. Isn't that the same guy? Yes! yes. Smalls, Babe Ruth is the greatest baseball player that ever lived. I mean, people say he was less than a god, but more than a man. You know, like Hercules or something. That ball you just aced to the beast is worth, well, more than your whole life, man. I don't feel so good. Uh-oh, bear, give him air, give him air. Come on. We have to get that ball back. All right, when does your old man get home from work? He's gone on business, out of town, but he could be back any time. All right, find out when. And guys, spread out and look for bottles and cash them in. We need 98 cents. We got to buy us a ball. Yeah! <laughs> Who wants to watch the whole movie? Like, I'll just leave. We'll just watch the movie, right? Uh, here's what I love about The Sandlot, and a lot of movies like this, um, is it, it just shows this bond of friendship that kids have. And I remember watching it as a kid and saying, man, I wish I had a group of friends like that, um, that I could go and play baseball with every night. Like, I know that they're going to be there playing whenever I'm bored, whenever I want someone to hang out with. Uh, they celebrated holidays together, like the, there was a 4th of July scene where they're celebrating and looking at the fireworks. And then like, even in those moments, like the greatest crisis that this kid faces in his life is he's lost his stepdad's baseball. They immediately bond together and they take ownership of that problem together. Like they don't step back and say, dude, that's your problem, good luck with that. But they step in and they say, we're going to help you. And, and I, want to, I want to talk about that a little bit because I think that if we look at that truth, we can find that that's exactly what God's intention for the church is, is that when we are struggling, when we face problems, that as the church, we should bond together to help one another. So I want to look at a passage in Acts chapter 4, um, and this is one of the few passages in the New Testament that doesn't describe what the church is, is doing, it's more describing the church as a whole. And so the book of Acts is all about the setup of the early church, the first church thousands of years ago, um, right after Jesus ascended up to heaven. And this is one of the few passages that's almost stepping back from the narrative of the story to describe the church as a whole. And I just want us to pay attention to how the church is described in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 32. Here's what it says. It says, all the believers were united in heart and mind. And they felt that what they owned was not their own, so they shared everything that they had. And by the way, this wasn't because they felt guilted to or forced to or like, it wasn't like the church leader stood up and said, if you want to be a good person, you have to give us all your money. It wasn't that at all. It was they felt compelled to because of the love that they had for one another that that true, like, agape, servant-hearted love that the church had towards one another caused them to be radically generous to each other. Verse 33, the apostles testified powerfully to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and God's great blessing was upon them all. 
There were no needy people among them because those who owned land or houses would sell them and bring the money to the apostles to give to those in need. Some of us read that and we get nervous that we're going to ask you to do that. Not at all, because the church didn't ask these individuals to do that. These individuals saw that there were needs, that there were people that had greater needs than them, and they had extra, so they were willing to share. It's this unbelievable picture that I read today, and it almost throws me off to imagine a group of people that maybe didn't know each other for that long being that generous to each other, taking ownership over people's lives. It's, it's almost countercultural to anything I can imagine. Uh, I live in Bridgewater, and there's a state university there, Bridgewater State, 12,000 college students, and, and their mission statement is not to be ministered to, but to minister. And I drove past that um, a few months ago, because my, my house is just down the street from it, and I saw that. I never noticed it, but not to be ministered to, but to minister, and I thought that was fascinating, partially because I'd never heard the, the word minister used outside of like a Christian service context, and so part of me wondered if it was originally founded as a Christian university, and so I, I went and I asked um, I was at a committee meeting there, and I, I asked one of the employees there, I said, your mission statement, not to be ministered to, but to minister, does that have Christian roots? And they said, uh, no, I'd never heard our mission statement before. They'd never thought about it before. Uh, so people drive past it, and they don't think about this, this fascinating vision that this university has, that, I, that I, I think of it, and I think, man, what an incredible concept to teach and train young people that are at a university that they're not getting a job so that, so that other people can help them lead a better life, but they're getting a job and they're serving the world to help other people lead a better life. And I thought, man, what a fascinating concept. Um, God wants us to do uh, the same to each other in, in, in every single day. And I think of this picture of the early church, and as it goes on, it almost gives... It almost it gives a specific story of this guy who does this incredibly generous thing in the next few verses, and it's talked about like it's just another fact about the church. It says in verse 36, it says, For instance, there was Joseph, the one the, one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the, tri the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. Which, how amazing that this guy had been living in such a way that the apostles gave him a nickname, gave him a new name, son of encouragement. Like he was living out encouragement and generosity in such a way that he was actually given a new name by the church. Verse 37, he sold a field he owned and he brought the money to the apostles. It's just unbelievable to me. Like a few weeks ago, we talked about spiritual gifts and how some people actually have the spiritual gift of of giving, and I think that that was probably one of Joseph's. Is is the the Bible paused to to notice somebody who God had given the gift of spiritual uh, the spiritual gift of giving, um, and and was radically giving from from what he owned to help those in need. He looked around and he saw there are other people here who have more who have bigger needs than I do, and I have excess. Um, see, I think when when God set up the church as He did, it wasn't just a place that we came to; it was who we are. It was the very being of being a Christ follower. It was, it was our own existence. The church met daily. Like what we do in life groups is, is even a closer picture of what the church looked like 
than what we do here on the weekends, because that's how the church operated, was on a daily basis in homes. They all came together on the weekends, but a lot of the stories that we read didn't take place on the weekends. They took place in, in their gatherings together outside of the weekends. In this picture of Joseph, it reminds me that God gives us excess so that we can share more, not wear more. A lot of times, we live in a culture that tells us that we should always want more. I've been reading a lot of books on rest and, and like why it's so hard for us to slow down. And, and I read just recently how ingrained in all of us is a desire for more. Like it's hard for us to be content with what we have because we want more love, we want more relationships, we want more, more responsibility at work, we want more influence, we want more money. And, and, and we want that so that we have more. But, but God actually gives us more and he gives us excess so that we can share with those that don't have. It doesn't mean that God's against us being wealthy, and it doesn't mean that God's anti-rich people. Uh, he's not at all. Um, he does say that the more wealth we accumulate, the harder it can be to keep our eyes on Jesus because of the temptation of turning the love of money into an idol. Um, but God's not against us having money at all. Um, God wants us to be able to support our families. Um, but he also set up the church in a way that some of us God has blessed at a higher level of generosity financially so that we can turn around and share it with the people around us. And, and you know what? It doesn't even just apply to money. Like, like, how do you spend your extra time? Like, I think of the, the picture of the church, and I think of these guys in the sandlot that, that they rally together when somebody has a problem. Uh, like, what a cool picture of what the church could be. That, like, th they had other things they could have done. They could have run home, but they said... Our mission now is to get that baseball back. And the rest of the movie is them trying to help this one guy with his problem. Even though he's the only one that would have faced consequences for it, they were a team. I can think of countless times when the church has given up its time to help me. And as a result, all that it does is cause me to want to give back more. I had a friend in Houston. I worked at a church in Houston for a few years. And, um, and he... He volunteered his time. He, he, he did sprinklers and irrigation. That was like his thing, and he'd done it. He had his own company for years, and he told me if we ever had a problem with our sprinkler system, he'd come and fix it, no cost, because he just knew that that's one way he could help serve other people in the church. And so one time our sprinkler, like one of our heads broke, and he came, and it took him like an hour. He had to re, like rerun the line, and it took him like probably two hours, and he did it after he was doing all his paid jobs. He came to our house at like 5.30, and he was there until like 7.30 at night. He wouldn't take any money. He wouldn't even take dinner because he's like, well, I'm going to go home and have dinner with my family. Like, he, he understood that God had given him extra time, so he wanted to give that to other people. I think of one of my closest friends in the world, Dan, um, who I've been friends with for over 10 years now. And even as we've moved to different cities and, um, and now are raising our own families and we still keep in touch all the time. And I remember a specific moment almost a year ago to the date that I was actually moving here from Texas. And it was like a 35-hour drive. And I was driving a 26-foot moving truck and pulling my car. It was amazing. And uh, I was exhausted and tired and any like gust of wind like makes the car shake and I'm just nervous and this was the third day of driving and we were almost there I was like somewhere in like New York um, and I was just I was just exhausted and I was in the truck by myself because my brother was was driving another car behind me and he was following me and just worn out and all of a sudden I get a call from my friend Dan 
just kind of out of the blue. Um, but the timing on it was unbelievable because I, like, I, I was, um, my, my mind was just filling with all types of exhausting thoughts. And, um, and he called me up to just ask how I was doing. And he said, without me knowing anything about this conversation, that he and his wife for the past several weeks had been praying about some extra money that they'd come into um, just through his work. Um, he's in sales, so he gets uh, commission. And uh, he said that uh, God had just given them a really generous season, and they had a surplus, and they were praying about what to do with the money. And they kept coming back to helping with our church plant because he knew we were moving up here. He didn't know anything about Grace Church or West Bridgewater, um, but, but God prompted him to help us because he knew that there was a need because we were starting something new. Um, and so he gave us, like just on the phone, he told me, um, that he was going to give us this unbelievably generous gift that was the, the largest gift we'd received so far, just out of the blue, without me even talking to him. And it, it changed the rest of the ride for me because it reminded me that I wasn't in this alone. It's not like I was just moving up here, but there were other people that were going to help us to do this. Some people that aren't even in the same area of the country and might not ever see Hockamock Plaza. But it reminded me that God put the church in order for that exact picture. I think of my life group. Like, hopefully you guys are a part of a life group. And I mean that. It's not just something we talk about because it's one more thing for you to do. We really believe that that's where life transformation takes place. I started a life group when I was in Texas before I moved here, and it ended up having some of the closest friends I've ever had in my life. And you know who showed up to help us move for two days before we moved here? It was our life group. You know who watched our kids for free so Katie and I could have like one last date night in Texas before we moved? It was people from our life group. That's what I love, is God has established the church for that reason. And, and the reason why we, we will constantly nudge you towards life groups is we believe that if you're not a part of that, you're missing out on so many of these team elements that we see in movies like The Sandlot. The church took ownership of each other's problems and needs. I want to look at one other passage uh, in Galatians um, that, uh, that God kind of paints a picture of what his desire for us, the church, is supposed to be. Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. And so what Paul, who wrote this, is saying to the church of Galatia thousands of years ago, but he's just as much saying this to us today, is when someone struggles in the church, we have a responsibility to help them, to pray for them, to continue loving them, to continue showing them grace. Like, that's not just their problem, but we carry that with them. Verse 2, share each other's burdens and in this way, obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You're not that important. <laughs> I like how Paul puts that in there. Like you can tell there's a little bit of bitterness because he helps to plant this church and then he saw this church over time become more and more selfish and people just start to focus on their own. So he, almost some emotion comes out. You're not that important that you think that you're above other people's problems. Like God, God wants us to share our burdens with one another. God wants us to share our burdens, not bear our burdens. See, our tendency often is when we're facing a problem is to just try to fix it on our own because we don't want to inconvenience other people because it takes humility to ask for help because it's admitting that we can't do it on our own. 
because it's admitting that we don't have a handle on everything in our lives. But the thing is, God never intended for us to handle our problems on our own. Like he never, there, there's never been an intention for a Christ follower to be outside the church. Like, as a Christ follower, God's intention is for you to be a part of this team, which means as a part of this team, any problem you face, any struggle you have, we carry that together. We share each other's problems and burdens because we're stronger together. I think of, um, I think of a story a few years ago. Um, when I, I just graduated from college and I was working as a part-time middle school pastor at a church in Nashville. And um, it was kind of like one of those just big transition years in my life. I went from being a college student and having like college friends all around me and living in an apartment with some of them to like now I took this job and I was living with my parents back home and I was working at a church that didn't have a lot of young adults. And, uh, and I, was, I was working really hard um, but as time went on, even though I'd just been there a few months, I started to realize, like, I didn't really have a lot of friends around me because a lot of my close friends had graduated and moved to other cities and taken other jobs, or some of them were still in school. And so I was working at this church, but I didn't feel like I had any community in my life. And so there was this particular Tuesday over the summer, and it was almost eight, it was almost eight years ago to the day. It was a Tuesday evening. Um, and we just got done. We did this thing after, uh, like, I'd work in the office, and then we, had, we actually had a basketball goal, like a basketball court inside the church building that I worked at. And we did this thing called B-Ball Tuesdays, where I invited all of the middle school boys to come and play basketball um, so I could beat them in basketball, because um, those are the only people I could beat in basketball. Uh, and, uh, and, we'd, and we'd play for, like, an hour, hour and a half. Then we'd hang out, and, and I'd always make one of the eighth-grade boys do, like, a little devotional. And it was, it was a really fun time. Um, but it means I wouldn't, I usually, would, I'd come in at 8 or 8.30 to the office, and I wouldn't get out until after 8 or 8.30 that night. And so I remember driving home that particular night, and it was a summer night, and it'd been, it'd been a fun day, but I just remember thinking, like, I'm driving home, uh, I'm, like, living at home, and I, I love my parents, but, like, I'd lived away for four years, and it felt kind of weird being back, and I just wanted somebody, like a friend I could just go and hang out with and get a cup of coffee with. But there was nobody I could think of, because none of my friends lived in my hometown anymore. And, um, and so, like, almost out of desperation, I called one of the dads in the student ministry that had been at that night, like, that basketball night with me. And I, I was like, hey, Jeff, um, do you have a few minutes to chat? And he goes, yeah, is everything okay? He was thinking, like, something happened at the church. I was like, no, I'm actually I'm back home. I'm just sitting in my bedroom. But... Like, I feel weird saying this because we just hung out for two hours, but, like, I came home and, I, like, I was just sitting here thinking, like, I want to go and talk to somebody, but I honestly didn't know who to call and who to talk to, so I called you and just, and I felt like I just needed to share that I'm, I'm kind of lonely right now, and, and even though I'm surrounded by people on the weekends, I don't really have people to talk to during the week, and uh, it was kind of vulnerable for me, because he, like, he was volunteering in my ministry, and he'd never seen this side of me, and I wasn't trying to hide anything, um, but that just never came out, and I said, can you just, like, pray for me? I'm not asking for a solution. I'm not saying you need to be my best friend, because you're, like, 20 years older than me anyway, but I don't know, and, and so he just, like, immediately started to encourage me, prayed for me, 
and, and I hung up the phone and I was reminded that I'm not alone. And sometimes that's all we need. Even if God takes a little bit longer to answer that prayer, we just need to remember that we're not alone. What's crazy about that story is that was on a Tuesday. And I remember that because the next Sunday I preached at that church. It was the first sermon I'd given there. And afterwards I met who came to be my wife, Katie. And what I love about that is God knew that the whole time. Like he knew that I was just days away from my life transforming and, and him answering that prayer that had been on my heart. But in the meantime, he gave me somebody in the church to encourage me and get through the week. Like that's the beauty of the church is we don't have to carry these things on our own even though our tendency is to. Even though the enemy wants to lie to you and tell you that nobody cares about your problems, that everyone's too busy, that everyone's got their own things dealing with, that they're gonna be inconvenienced, that they're gonna look down on you. And all of that's just lies from the enemy. I found that when... When people come to me and they share honestly things they're struggling with, my respect level for them goes up because how often are we truly vulnerable with each other? Verse 4 says, Pay careful attention to your own work, for then you'll get the satisfaction of a job well done, and you won't need to compare yourself to anyone else. God wants us to share our lives, not compare our lives. Have you noticed that generally, we, we all have somebody that we kind of compare our lives to. Have you noticed that it's usually because we don't feel like we're on the same team as them. We feel like it's us versus them. When you feel like you're on the same team as somebody, you don't compare yourself to them. You try to help them. Because you know that when they succeed, the teams succeed. So you want everybody to do better. And I think the enemy's biggest tactic is to turn we into me, is to, to make us think that we're not a part of this group, that you're sitting in here and you're alone, and, and nobody really connects with you, and, and nobody really understands what you're going through. The enemy loves to lie to us all at the same time with the same words to tell us th that you're not really a part of something bigger, that you don't really have people around you to help you, that you need to start comparing yourself because the insecurity and, and the jealousy in your heart has led you to believe that if they're doing well, then it means you're not doing well. And none of that's from God, but that's what the enemy wants because the enemy knows that the most powerful force in the universe is the church working through the Holy Spirit. And so he's going to do anything he can to disrupt it. I love movies like The Sandlot because it shows me a picture of what nine kids that on their own aren't that strong, what they look like when they come together that they're able to come up with new ideas and problem solve and, and achieve something as simple as getting a baseball that the kid never would have been able to do on his own. I love that because it's exactly what God's intention for the church is. A group of people to celebrate the exciting times, to help share burdens in the hard times, and, and honestly, just to be there during the mediocre Tuesdays, the every day. That's what I love about the life group I get to lead is some days I'm not going through anything like especially hard or especially exciting and it's nice to just know that I've got a group of people that are coming over on Mondays I get to share my life with. Sometimes that's the most beautiful thing about community is it's just that we, we just get to coexist with each other. I don't think there's anybody in this room that's opposed to deeper community. Like I don't think this is the kind of subject that, that creates a lot of controversy and people are like, actually, I want to be lonelier 
I want less people in my life. I'm tired of all this community stuff. I think everybody wants more meaningful relationship, more community, wants to go deeper. Um, even, if, even if we aren't willing to put in the work to get there, I think we all desire that. And so I think that the natural next steps for us is, is if you're not in a life group, I challenge you and I continue to challenge you to consider joining one. Life groups are, are weekly um, uh, usually smaller groups, usually 10 to 15 people that meet in a home. It, it, they're kind of scattered all over the area. So regardless of where you come from, even if you feel like you drive pretty far to get to Grace compared to other people, there's probably a life group that's close to you. We have them all over the area. There's probably multiple life groups. They, they meet on different nights of the week. Some have food. Um, some do snacks. Um, some like do hangouts every other week. Like every, every life group's a little different, and we let the leaders kind of have the freedom to lead, but all of them have this in common. Um, it's a time to come together each week and, uh, and share about the weekend teaching and how we can directly apply it to our lives. Because a lot of times we'll hear the teaching, and God will like speak through different things we say, and he'll speak in different ways. But if, we don't, if we're not able to discuss it and kind of talk through it with other people, it just kind of sits there. Like it's just something we heard, and then we forget about it, and we hear the next message, and it's something we heard, and then we hear the next message. But, but having life groups is almost a layer that, that leads to more application in our lives. Uh, the other thing that I like about life groups is the community that we get to have. Like I think the closest friends that I've been able to develop here in the year that we've been here are people that I've been in a life group with. Because just by default, I see them more. Like, I see them every week. They come over. And, like, every fourth week, we kind of do, like, a hangout night where we do a shorter version of the discussion. And then we'll, like, go in my backyard and we'll play cornhole or we'll watch a movie. We did one where we watched, like, conspiracy theory documentaries. And that was fascinating. <laughs> and I love that I can do that with my life group. It, it, it's, it's so nice. It, it's nice because if, if you're having a hard week, you know that you've got that stop that you can come to and you've got a group of people that are going to pray for you. Or if you know that there's something really exciting going on in your life, you've got a group that gets to celebrate that with you. Like we celebrate birthdays and, and job promotions and, and like new, new things that are going on because, because that's, what, that's what we're supposed to do as the church. Um, if you're already a part of a life group, many of you are. Many of you, like you, you experience what I'm talking about. The next step would be what we, what we call growth groups. And we actually don't talk about those a ton, but it's something that, that we think is really exciting and important. And what a growth group is, is if you've been coming to a life group for a while, and naturally, if there's 10 or 12 or 15 people in your life group, you've probably naturally developed closer relationships with some individuals um, even more than others. And what we challenge you to do is, uh, is ask one or two uh, of the same gender uh, to get together once a month and it's very organic. There's no curriculum. It's not like a, a sermon-based like growth group to just get together and to talk about how things are going in your life, to talk about your spiritual life, talk about your family, talk about your relationships, and pray together. And that's it. So like, there's not a set time. And that's, that's part of the reason why it, it's really on your own initiative to do. That's part of the reason we don't talk about it as much as, as life groups, um, because that's really something that we challenge you to do on your own initiative, but that's where true accountability can happen. That's where you might open up about things that you're not going to share with a life group of 12 people, but with two or three people that you feel really close with, that you feel really trusting with, um, that's where you can really develop some honest conversations at an even deeper level. So we challenge you, if, that, if that's you, if you're in a life group and you know that like, you're ready for a next step, like you've been in a life group, but, but you really want to experience community at a deeper level, I would, I would challenge you to do that. 
Um, my wife and I are both doing that. And, and sometimes it's maybe just one other person or two other people. Maybe you just meet at like a, a Starbucks on Tuesday nights once a month and, and your spouse watches the kids. But, but make that sacrifice. It, it's totally worth it. Um, I'll close with this. Um, the greatest team I've ever seen uh, was a herd of cows. Um, so uh, I was asked to help like lead a... Uh, a student event when I was in college called D Now. And it was like a weekend event where you have like big worship and then you all go to like these different host homes. And so I was leading, um, I think it was like the eighth grade guys host home. And it was led by like, it, it was, the host home was like an ex NHL player. So he had like this beautiful ranch and he breeded Great Danes, which that's not relevant to the story. I just feel like you need to know that to get a mental picture that there were 13 Great Danes walking around that were taller than the middle schoolers. And, um, and right across the street from his beautiful home, uh, he had like acres and acres of land and like 100, 100 cows. And, um, and so I asked him, this is like the Saturday night. And the idea of the event was like we do a Bible study and then we just kind of hang out together. Like, like you can play video games or watch a movie or go do something. So I asked him, I said, hey, if we get our Bible study done early enough, is it okay with you if we go into your fields and go cow tipping? And do you guys know what that is? Is that just a Tennessee thing? Uh, it, it's like super Southern, but uh, the idea is you go and shove over a cow while it's sleeping. Sounds fascinating, I know. And he laughed at me, and I realize now that he wasn't laughing with me, he was laughing at me, because he knew that these cows are like a thousand pounds, and like a 105-pound middle schooler was going to break his arm trying to shove it over. But he's like, absolutely have fun. So, uh, so we all go over, and it's me and my co-leader, Josh, and we've got like these eight middle schoolers, and they're way too excited about this, obviously. And, uh, and we go up, and we cross the street, and it's this old country road. There's never any cars on it, but um, there's this old wooden fence that like disintegrates as you're climbing over it because it's so old. And, uh, and right as we're about to climb over it, like one of these... Like, little middle schoolers looks up to me, and he's like, I'm not going, man. I was like, dude, don't be a loser. Don't ruin this for me. This is really important that I do this. And he's like, I'm not going, dude. I was like, come on. And we're like, we're arguing back and forth, and the other guys are over the fence. It's like, it's just a cow, man. It's just a cow. And he's like, there's no way, dude. And so I had to, I was like, fine. I'll stay with the loser, and you guys go and have fun. So I sat on the other side of the fence, and we, wa <laughs> we watched as my friend Josh and like seven middle schoolers. They didn't know what to do. There's no strategy to this. It's just like chase a cow, I guess. And they're like the cows are kind of scattered and they're sleeping, but kind of they're standing. So, but they're just scattered and they'd hear, they'd hear people coming and they'd just casually walk away from them. So it was harder than we thought it would be. And it was like this scene out of a movie where I see Josh and like these seven like charging after these cows and they start to just run away from them and they like go like under where like the horizon they just disappear and then I hear a pause and then instead of like shouting it now sounds like screaming as I see them running back and being chased by the cows that were previously running away from them and they were terrified because they didn't know this was a part of the game but apparently it is because cows don't like when you chase them in the middle of the night and so 
they're running after them, and before they know it, these cows are like gaining on them, and they're terrified, and the little loser kid next to me is like, I told you we shouldn't have done it. <laughs> and and they, like, they're running, they're, they're running over this fence, and the fence is like breaking, which is terrifying us, because that's our only barrier, and before we know it, we're like laughing and high-fiving, because we get on the other side of this fence, and they're like sweating, and like it's middle school sweat, so it smells horrible, and, and we look up, and like, 15 feet in front of us are a hundred cows, shoulder to shoulder, staring at us. Like they were scattered, but no longer. Because we threatened a few of them, so the whole herd came. And we didn't know what to do, because we'd never done this before, and I was like the oldest person there, and I was like 20. I'm like, we're going to die by cow. I didn't think that happened. That happened like in the 1600s, not today. And one of the cows even steps forward like a military thing, and he like does this, and he's got like grass hanging. Like I think we disturbed his late night snack. Like he's mad. And they're just staring at us, and we don't know what's going to happen, but we're frozen because we don't know what to do. We're afraid if we move, we're going to die, and we're afraid if we stay there, we're going to die. And after like a three or four minute showdown, we're like, we weren't laughing anymore. We're just staring and we're like saying our final prayers and like eventually the cow just stepped back and then they all just scattered and it was over and they went back to sleep. It was like all they had to do was show us that we shouldn't mess with them. I'll never forget that picture. That if you mess with any of them, the whole herd wakes up and comes and stands shoulder to shoulder to face the problem. What a picture of what the church could be in our lives. Where if you're facing something, if you feel threatened by the enemy, imagine if your team, imagine if your life group, imagine if your closest friends here at Grace Church, you knew we're going to stand up shoulder to shoulder against your problem. That it's not something you're dealing with on your own, that you're just being chased down a field, but you know you can run back and chase that problem because you're not alone. That's the picture of the community that God has for us. That's what I love about watching a movie like The Sandlot. I hope that every time you watch it after this, you watch it thinking of what a cool picture that could be for the church. This is exciting to me because I really believe we can accomplish this. There's going to be a lot of things that we'll never be able to do like Acts 4, but I think there's a lot of things we can do. And that's what I get excited about is, is what if... What if we became a church community that shares with each other, not compares? That shares our burdens, not tries to bear our burdens? What if we became a church community that reminds us constantly that we were never intended to live life alone? Let's pray together. God, I thank you that you did not create us to be alone, God. You created us to be a part of a team. God, we all face constant struggle and, and trial and problems and weaknesses and insecurities, God. But you never intended for us to just figure all that out on our own. You set up the church immediately after you left because you knew that we needed it, God. So I pray that we can take advantage of the strengths of one another, God. We are stronger together. I pray that we can push away from the tendency to compare, 
and look towards sharing our lives with each other, God. Lord, I thank you because I, I, believe that, I believe that many of us right now are already experiencing some of the things we're talking about. And I pray that this compels us to go deeper. God, I pray for those that, that haven't taken steps towards really finding this as, as their community and their team, that they take the steps necessary. God, that the enemy has no room to disrupt us or make us too busy for us because there's nothing more important than for us being involved with people that love us and have our backs, God. We thank you so much. We pray this in your name. Amen.